1: You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday.
0: Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News recently talked with the head of Northwell Health. It's a massive hospital and healthcare system in New York State. They have seen the strains and stresses and really the devastating impact on patients brought on by COVID-19. Back with us and with us, I should say, is Bruce Farber, Chief of Infectious Diseases at Northwell Health, on the phone from Manhasset, New York. Dr. Farber, it is really great to have you here with us. Um, we've learned a lot by talking uh, to the head of your hospital system. Tell us a little, a little bit about kind of where we are, because. It's an interesting week where we're seeing more reopening, but yet we're hearing of, you know, cases now again in South Korea and places that have kind of been held up as the gold standard in terms of dealing with the virus. So what's important about what we need to know on this Monday, May 11th?
2: Yeah, I, I agree. It's um, it's a very funny time. Uh, in New York, the number of new cases is down significantly. Deaths are down significantly. Uh, At our hospital system, we're almost under 1,000 hospitalized people with COVID from a peak of 4,000, so that's a huge decrease from what it was, and that's all very good news. Um, Yeah, I still, and I think many people still think that this is going to be a game of whack-a-mole and that we're clearly not out of the woods. Uh, We are making contingency plans for what the fall might look like uh, when flu comes back. Uh, At the same time, I still think that um, there's not enough herd immunity in the community or in the world to think that this is going to be over any time in the foreseeable future without a vaccine, and that's not around the corner.
1: And so, Dr. Farber, talk to us, if you you will, for a minute more about the New York City area. I mean, this is where you live and work. Um, I I mentioned uh, last week when we were talking about Northwell, I'm very fortunate to live next to Phelps Hospital here in Westchester, which I believe is part of your uh, system and certainly have taken advantage of of your good care uh, over the years. It has been incredibly intense in in the tri-state area. What do we know about the state of this uh, here in the New York City area right now?
2: Well, like I said, things are much much better, and the hospital systems are now functioning but remember it 's going to take three things for us to really be able to open up more than um, than we are now, and right. that 's going to be one a dramatic decrease in the number of new cases and based on the state's guidance, I think we basically still have to half them roughly about to roughly about two to three hundred per day in the entire New York City area. Uh, that's one thing. The second thing is we need more testing. Any opening up is contingent on us massively increasing our testing and although testing has increased logarithmically in the last three weeks, it's going to have to go up even more. We're talking about testing all admissions to the hospitals, doing surveillance testing in people in the hospitals, testing people in nursing homes, testing people in other environments, going for elective surgery, going for procedures, going for cancer chemotherapy, testing employees. Um, So the testing has to increase. And then the third component, which New York is not ready to do, although they're talking about it, is contact tracing. Because after all, to really open up, we need to have less cases, we need to have frequent testing, and thirdly, we need to have contact tracing so that when a mini outbreak breaks out, if you will, we can contain it quickly before it turns into a massive hotspot.
0: Dr. Farber, help me out, because I feel like we've been talking about testing and the need for it, and I feel like if there's one thing everybody agrees is testing and then ultimately tracing in order to really reopen up this economy. We've been doing this for several weeks now, and yet we're still talking about there's not enough tests out there. What's holding it back? What's the problem right now?
2: There's several things. Number one is the supply chain is just not there. I mean, you need certain reagents. You need certain swabs. Um, and there're really not enough of them around, despite the uh, the reassurances from from some politicians they 're not there you just can 't get them. Secondly, a lot of people are dependent on point of care remember there 's basically two forms of these tests occurring: one is point of care that 's a rapid test that can be done in a relatively in a two to three hour period of time that is used when you need very quick results somebody coming into an er somebody about to go for surgery somebody who's uh, about to go for a procedure or in a community Um, we really want to know right away in terms of segregating people Um, and then there's the much more reliable and tests that can be done on in much greater volumes um, in laboratories but the turnaround time there It's going to be at least nine, and it's often 12 hours in terms of delivery and getting it and and that sort of thing. And there's a very short supply of the point-of-care tests. They're just not out there to be had at the present time. As a matter of fact, paradoxically, our numbers of of point-of-care testing has decreased in the last um, week strictly due to supply problems. Our um, laboratory-based testing is increasing significantly. So Hmm.
0: just briefly, the point-of-care testing. So it sounds like we need both. But, I mean, is it something that the federal government should be acting much more aggressively on? And we've only, unfortunately, got about 40 seconds before we'll take a break and um, talk a little bit more.
2: Well, you get into the politics of it. But, yes, I mean, I think we've been reassured so many times by the federal government that there are more than adequate tests. Um, But anybody working here knows that's just not the case. I mean, they're just not – Available. I think the labs are doing the best they can. I think we're gearing up as fast as we can. We do have enough serology capacity. We can test over 10,000 people a day for serology. But unfortunately, serology is helpful from an epidemiologic point of view, but it is not going to allow us mm. to rapidly dis- right. dis- distinguish who's infected and who's not.
1: Well, let's continue our conversation with Dr. Bruce Farber. He's the chief of infectious diseases at Northwell Health here in the New York area. Dr. Farber, let's just go there and talk about what does reopening look like? And as Carol said just a few minutes ago, what's a realistic timeline, especially when we're thinking about our area here?
2: Well, I think it's going to happen in stages. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Look, I do believe that it's much less likely to get this infection when you're outside, particularly with social distancing. It's not only easier to social distance, but the wind, the weather uh, allow this virus to become much less contagious when you're outside than when you're in a confined space with poor air exchanges. Um, So I could potentially see over the summer outdoor restaurants opening with a lot of space. Um, indoor restaurants, maybe, maybe later, you know, with a lot of space. Um, the last thing I don't think we're going to see open for many months are going to be large venues, Broadway, uh, basketball games, sports events, concerts, all of the things that unfortunately make New York such a vibrant city and bring in tourists. It's just hard to see that happening. Uh, for at least many, many, many more months to come.
0: Dr. Farber, what about, though, okay, teams playing professionally, but there's nobody in the stand, so at least broadcast organizations can be broadcasting games. Can teams play safely and easily? It's, a, re- it's yeah. a
2: really good question, and I've been working with one of the professional teams on this. And it can be done, but it has to be done with so much detail, and it's not going to be done the way... Uh, it used to be done. It will literally have to be in a very closed environment where players cannot leave for a period of time. They will have to be tested on a regular basis. It's going to be harder for certain sports like football, much harder because of the number of people involved. Right. It's not clear that anybody's going to be able to pull it off, and particularly if there's a shortage of tests because there's going to have to, you're going to have to test all of these people very, very often, probably every two days, three days at the most, maybe more often. So it's not a matter of just taking the fans out of the stadium and then putting on these games. There's a lot
0: of work and a lot of uh, problems. We talked with Paul Rabel of the Premier Lacrosse League because he is doing a self-quarantine two-week tournament, but basically once the players are tested and quarantined, they're in it for a couple of weeks. And I do wonder if for professional sports, maybe baseball, to actually take off. You're talking about teams having to quarantine themselves probably from their families for a sustained period of time in order for them to play.
2: Yes, and it'll change
0: the schedules. back-to-back
2: games will be more difficult to do based on the testing and the risk of exposure to other people. Um, yes, it's going to be a different game if, if it if it comes off. And it's not going to be easy. And uh, it will have to be limited to a few sites, by the way. I don't think that, you know, the travel will allow this to be a regular season. It'll be entirely different.
1: And so, uh, Dr. Farber, what are we learning so far from other states that have had lower infection rates, lower incidences, of COVID-19 cases that maybe we can take from and, and learn from as as this country sort of reopens in different stages?
2: Well, I think we actually learn more in some respects from other countries than we do for different states, because states have been all over the place. And a lot of what's happened in states to me so far is it 's too early to say that they 're really going to be spared or whether they 've been literally lucky to date
3: hmm. based
2: on their population density and and other things because certainly um, the jury is still out on all those issues. but in the countries like South Korea and Indonesia and Singapore that have done a pretty good job, uh, what you notice is that they 've done pretty much what we 've done only they 've ramped up testing enormously they 've done a lot of contact tracing they 've changed the work habits of people they 've did ongoing social distancing. And most importantly, they're seeing many outbreaks and many reintroductions that they have to clamp down on immediately and isolate those people. And unfortunately, it's a lot harder in a big heterogeneous country like ours, particularly in a dense city like New York.
0: You're going to have to be quick, 20 seconds, but offices and things like New York and commuting, that's going to be really difficult to work out. Yes, staggered hours. People probably will change the way they work. They'll
2: come in in a morning shift in the office and, you know, stay later. Um, Yeah, there's going to be a lot of changes. Yeah, absolutely.
1: All right. Well, we will look forward to keeping in touch with you. Thank you so much. This was really, really uh, worthwhile for us and for our listeners. Bruce Farber, he is the Chief of Infectious Diseases at Northwell Health. Joining us on the phone from Manhattan. Sounds like a little bit of a playbook. Totally. Totally. So
0: cool.
4: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
1: I've got to save ourselves from going down a major rabbit hole here because Joel Weber and I are instant messaging right now talking about the big Lebowski, and I could spend the rest of the show talking about that. We're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a terrific story that Devin Leonard wrote. He is projects and investigations reporter, one of our favorites for Bloomberg Business Week. Joining us on the phone from New York, as is the aforementioned editor of the magazine, Joel Weber. He's on the phone from Brooklyn. So this aggression will not stand, Joel, but I turn it over to you to help us understand what's going on in the world of small business.
4: Uh, boy, talk about a moment in time that a group of businesses have just been um, really sideswiped. Um, and and this is obviously something that um, Bloomberg has been covering closely from the moment the pandem- pandemic really started to escalate, because if there's a you know, really a backbone of this country's economy in the U.S. It it looks like small business. Um, Roughly one out of every two jobs in the country probably um, are uh, small business related. And um, so they've really been bearing the brunt of it. And uh, as we've sort of seen the story evolved, we put Devin into the mix to sort of step back and really kind of help us make sense of things like PPP. And as he kind of dug into it, it just was like such a rich narrative and also one that like, look, this is a story that we're, this is the opening, opening chapters of it. We're looking at something here that's going to last for weeks, months, years. Um, Devin, what did you talk to so many small business people for this story? What did what, what kind of takeaways and lessons did you have? Well, just
3: really quickly, just just for the record. Uh, my editor, who did a great job in the story, he cut out my big lebowski joke I, I, I said that the SBA <laughs> no. abides anyway I, I, I just since you guys brought it up Wow but, but, <laughs> but, but what, what, what I found out was that uh, I, I mean this was a really well intentioned thing that Congress did as part of the CARES Act you know, the paycheck protection program, but it was rushed out it was intended you know was sort of sort of framed as something that would that would really help small businesses, but really it 's much more designed to well to do what it says protect people's paychecks keep people you know, on the payroll of these of these small businesses but a lot of these small businesses are struggling they've been ordered to shut and for for the for the proprietors they have to decide well do I just pay all my workers to do nothing or do I somehow hope that I can use the money later when we're opening up in an uncertain economy so it's a lot of money you know more than 600 billion dollars but is it going to have the impact that um, that Congress? I think that we all hoped. I, I I I don't I I don't know. I don't I don't think it's really clear at all.
0: Well, Devin. So what? You know, through your reporting and talking to small business, and you have a you know really great read and story um, reality of Sarah McNally, who runs you know well-known bookstores certainly here in the New York City area, and I just do wonder: is it the program itself, the size of the program, the access? To small business loans, where what have you found out? That's you know what's breaking down here.
3: Well, Congress it sort of as as often happens, Congress passes a law and allocates you know you know the amount of money to be spent on it, but how it's actually going to be implemented that's left up to to the agency that's actually going to be running the program, or in this case, the Small Business Administration and the you know the U.S. Department of Treasury, and they. You know, together they they wrote these rules, kind of after the fact, that kind of lock in small business owners to this seventy-five percent. Uh, you had to spend seventy-five percent on payroll. Or you don't get a loan forgiven, and the whole thing was sort of presented kind of as a grant program to to begin with. So, you, you know, you have that, of course, Carol, on top of well, people had you know people had hard had hard times getting loans because rather than put the money through the small business, business administration, which has had a tough time. Uh, handing out sort of loans directly before, and you know, situations like Katrina, and even you know more recently in Hurricane Sandy, they they basically had the SBA guarantee loans, and then the you know banks would would hand them out. And you know, as we all know now, and as Bloomberg has you know reported extensively on, um, right, and done a fantastic job on, uh, you know, you know. JP Morgan, big banks like that, they favored their cl- existing clients first because, again, the rules were unclear and they didn't want to take a chance, or they they were you know they didn't want to rush to take a chance on a bunch of you know first-time borrowers mm. whose credit histories that they that they were completely unfamiliar with. So actually, that Devin that
4: leads to sort of like a, a chapter in the story that you did, which is ultimately about you know small business owners who are you know almost turned away from the big institutions, and one of the places that they've turned to are sort of smaller or community banks. Um, And at first that wasn't really an option, but then there's been sort of cast of characters that happens to show up in your story. Tell me about those people um, and sort of how, how there's been sort of uh, a, a sort of middleman aspect to how these
3: loans have gone down. Well, at least, at least in this case, so you start with Sarah McNally, she owns four bookstores. You know, she'd had two bookstores, up until about six months ago, and then she opened two more, double the size of her company, then the COVID, you know, the COVID nineteen crisis hits, and um, she has to decide what to do. I started talking to her before she even went to, you know, tried tried to get a you know a PPP loan, but because like a lot of these small business owners, they they operate in really slim margins. What they don't want they want is more debt. But she decided she kind of had to go for it because. Bookstores are non-essential businesses, so she had to pretty much close down. She's you know she's operating an online business, but that, that doesn't she can't employ you know 115 employees on that revenue. So she goes to Bank of America. It becomes pretty pretty clear that you know pretty, well, after about a week or so that um it's, that the only thing that's possible is maybe getting loans for two of her stores. And she has actually has two stationary stores, so it's six in all. So she kind of panics, calls all these people, winds up talking to her, her optometrist of all people, and he's in a similar situation. He's gone. He's he's tried to apply online at J P Morgan Chase. Uh, he's he's been turned down, and but he has this connection through his um, optometric association to this, a loan brokerage out of Long Island, and these guys basically deal with all these non-banks, and they wind up connecting Sarah with. Um, a non-bank it's uh it's called fountainhead in uh in florida and the the bank approves her but doesn't get a chance to actually submit the loan to to the sba for for guarantee that's right when the money runs out so so I, I i just think people were just running around like crazy because if you didn't have a relationship with a really big bank well, where did you go right. and, and 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 so so, so, so that you know, you you had a mess right there with that. Luckily, she she was able to find somebody, but then she gets alone, and now she's kind of like you know, right? She has no quite no, what to do with it. But anyway,
0: well, and there's a great question that's brought up in your story, and I, I highly recommend that everybody go read it because there's so much information in there. But about whether or not PPP is really kind of thought about is really as pro worker as they are saying it is and and that's something i don't think has really gotten a lot of attention so rightfully so um you're giving it devin so check out the story it's going to be uh in the magazine on newsstands online and on the bloomberg devin leonard wrote it he is bloomberg business week investigations reporter and also joining us of course was joel weber bloomberg business week editor on the phone from brooklyn
4: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
1: Let's continue our economics discussion, uh, but take it in a slightly different direction with one of our faves, Andy Brown, back with us, editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy. And his column, a provocative headline, as it often has, Trump is trying to open Pandora's box. Andy Jones is on the phone from New Hampshire. All right. What's going on here, A.B.? yeah
5: so look the the, the the central idea here is that um, you know uh, at the very heart of this global pandemic um, is a mystery. Um, and that mystery, uh, quite simply, is where where did this virus come from? So we know that the outbreak was in Wuhan in China, and um, scientists are pretty sure that it jumped from bats to humans. Um, via uh, an, an, another kind of, uh, by um, you know, but via animals. But there are huge gaps in our understanding. Uh, we don't know what kind of animal. We don't know, is it a, was it a farm animal, a pig, for instance? Was it a wild animal, uh, a pangolin? Um, how did it spread so quickly? Um, could things have been done to to halt it uh, before it, it spread widely in Wuhan and then to the rest of the world? Um, and so, you know, in the absence of answers to this, and all we have is, is basically information coming out of China, and much of the world doesn't believe what's coming out of China. We know that there were cover-ups. The Chinese media has reported that, you know, uh, the Chinese authorities may, may have way low the numbers of infections and deaths in Wuhan. And in the absence of that, you've had all of these conspiracy theories taking root, particularly in the, in the uh, American political right Uh, And one of these theories is sort of what I call the Pandora's box theory, which is that, you know, it came out of a lab in uh, Wuhan, a a high security lab where where they're studying viruses. It was an accident. Um, and just as, you know, uh, Pandora's sort of, you know, reckless curiosity um, led her to open the box and out of, of course, in Greek mythology, out comes sick, all the evils of mankind, mm-hmm. sickness and death and poverty and, and, and toil and all the rest of it. Uh, and and that, that was exactly the, 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 uh, what happened in, in, in Wuhan, that, that China unleashed all of these terrible evils. Uh, on on mankind. So, you know, and that and that 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 theory is is widely believed now in in the White House, particularly, you know, um, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo. And he he said earlier, you know, there's enormous evidence for this happening. In fact, there's there is very little. In fact, there's no evidence at all that he's been able to produce um, to, you know, to 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 uh, substantiate um, this conspiracy theory. So, you know, right. I mean, it just it just seems like we need a global inquiry, right?
0: Well, I have to say, too, and Andy, one of the things that I found most telling was some of the interviews over the weekend with scientists who said, if you look at the virus and you look at the genetic makeup of it, you understand that this was not um, something that was, you know, made in a lab. And so that there's just a overwhelmingly amount of scientific evidence that says, okay, where this came from. But put that aside, in the meantime, you just have these increased tensions and problems, once again, coming from both the U.S. and Chinese sides. And you do wonder what this means going forward for what's already a fraught relationship, right, and and not a great one. And you do wonder what this means. You open up Pandora's box and and how much worse does it get? And then what are the repercussions in terms of us coming back from this virus on a health, con- you know, basis, as well as an economic basis?
5: Right. I mean, we need, yeah, for sure. You know, we, we need answers to this. Um, you know, where where did this virus come from? Lessons need to be learned. I mean, we we need to be better prepared for the next one. We're living in an age of pandemics. Um, we need to know, you know, what what should have been done that wasn't done. There are all sorts of you know, answers that scientists, that that government officials, that, you know, citizens, we all need to, we all need answers to these really basic questions. And, you know, and yet uh, it appears that, that, that China is Adamantly against anything that looks like an international inquiry. In fact, the Australian Foreign Minister uh, Marissa Payne, when she suggested it a, a week or so ago, the Chinese ambassador to Canberra, sort of in a rather veiled way, threatened that threatened you know trade sanctions um, against Australia. Said you know that the Chinese people may not uh, buy Amer- buy Australian beef and wine and so on. Um, you know, so it, it, it's it's politically almost impossible um, for China to agree to this because, of course, any independent inquiry is likely to start uncovering all kinds of embarrassing details, you know, about the about this cover up. Uh, that's been widely reported in 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 Wuhan. And, and in the absence of that, what you have is U.S.-China relations now just plunging to to the lowest point that they've been since the establishment of, of diplomatic relations. Mm.
1: Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, when you think about how hot this has gotten and how fast, uh, and it, it harkens back to... Uh, all the back and forth over the trade war, which seems um, uh, almost quaint at this point, because we're really talking about a lot of people's lives at, at this point, not just their livelihoods. All right. Andy Brown, editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy. His column, it's a must read on the terminal and on Bloomberg.com. Trump is trying to open Pandora's box. Carol.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is a you know difficult relationship was, as you said, going into it. And it just seems to get trickier and trickier. And you know, we need transparency from China, right? And we've talked about that for, for ages, I feel like.
1: I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Hey, how about you let me drive?
2: Oh, no, 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 no.
1: Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please,
4: I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, sing
5: it crazy. Just drive
4: baby. Just drive me crazy. It's the question that drives us. Drive. Is the drive to the close.
1: That punk to music will drive us till the dawn.
4: On Bloomberg Radio. All
1: right, it's time for the drive to the close. Back with us, we're excited to have her as Kathy Boyle, president and founder of Chapin Hill Advisors. Joining us on the phone just up the road from me in Pound Ridge, New York. Kathy, great to have you with us. How are you?
6: I'm great, Jason. I work from home office normally, so this isn't very much different.
1: The world is coming to you in many cases, right? <laughs>
6: It is. Zoom is the hot buzzword. Everybody's an expert.
1: It's it's funny. Uh, my wife also works from home, and, and she's been especially skeptical of this whole Zoom thing. She's like, um, you know, we can talk on the phone. Like, there's some of us who do this, you know, all the time. But I do wonder... Um, you know, as I say, you're you're up the road from me here in in Westchester, and I wonder how it's playing out there in in Pound Ridge. And and you put out a, a piece of research or, or a note to your clients, you know, talking about some some local restaurants, which I feel like we've been talking a, a lot about here on this show and and here in my little town and and in New York City. It it's sort of a it's a microcosm, right, of, of what we're going through.
6: It is, and I think a lot of people are unrealistic. They really are. I mean, you know, we live in a nice wealthy area, so there's a lot of people that I call the lalas, you know, and life is great, they've got, you know, very big incomes, lots of money in the bank, big houses um, so they are a little bit sheltered and isolated from what really goes on and some of those I've seen on social media saying, oh, I can't wait, when opens back up, we're going to go out, we're going to shop, we're going to but I don't think the average person, I think this has been such a terrifying experience for so many people that I think we will turn into a nation of I don't know if we'll go quite route of savers but I think people are really going to focus on the essentials Hmm. and restaurants have very skinny margins so they really i worked in the restaurant business for years i worked a lot in the food and beverage industry they do not have the flexibility they need to have those the dining room is full and if it's a hundred seats they need a hundred seats they need to have to turn two or three times in order to make it depending on the restaurant
0: so so very concerned well and i was going to say kathy i mean a lot of your clients i'm guessing are small business owners as well
6: Yeah. I mean, we focus on five to 50 million. So it depends on where you, you know, focus in terms of small business. Right. But, you know, have a, a, Food and beverage company doing ten million in revenue. They are lost four hundred and twenty thousand last year. He doesn't have any room for error. You know, the wine business in particular is usually eighty percent what we call off-premise, which is retail stores, and twenty percent on-premise, which is restaurants. So because we've been drinking like fish across the country, the off-premise has filled the gap, and many of these wine companies are doing close to the same volume, especially if they have liquor. But when we return. We will stop drinking as much, maybe still drink a little bit more than we were, but the restaurants are not going to fill the gap. So I'm advising a lot of my, you know, wine and liquor companies that they really need to prepare for a downturn in revenue and really tighten their belts and look at their bottom line.
1: And so Kathy, help us if you can square what you see in the markets with what you see at a local restaurant or what you see when you talk to your clients, because We've got a Nasdaq that's now up for the year. We've got an S and P that, if it closes where it is, will be you know in single digits down amid a global pandemic. Help me understand how this is happening.
6: So it is very confusing, right? And if you look at some of the smart money, look at Warren Buffett as sort of you know Oracle of Omaha, right? He's got 137 billion. He sold his entire airline position because uh, they don't see air traffic. Returning, It's down 90 percent. They don't see it returning for another three years. That's what somebody from Boeing said that. And then Leon Cooperman uh, joined in with Buffett and named all these reasons why he's not buying. So a lot of the smart money is not buying. I really think that part of what's happening, that volume is very low, and there's a small number of stocks, again, driving a lot of technology, which, granted, they're earning money this time as opposed to the dot-com bubble. But 10 stocks are accounting for 40 percent of the return of NASDAQ you know so it's a little bit crazy this disconnect 77 percent of people surveyed believe that they're going to be rehired yet university of chicago i think it was just came out with a survey that said only 42 percent of those people will be rehired three out of ten it's a big difference so i think i also think that people got very very complacent every single time 11 years jason 11 years we got taught every time the market falls buy it, buy the dip and you'll be rewarded. And so I honestly think that's guiding behavior. I have people that are normally nervous Nellies. The wife actually said to me, she goes, I mean, they have a very conservative portfolio and they've only lost about a third of what the market lost on the way down, which is our goal. But she said, you know, I'm okay with this. And she goes, can you believe I'm saying that? Because normally she wants to go all cash, you know? So I, I think that it's affected a broad range of people and that people are thinking they got last time they took money away from
0: their advisors. They went in in 09, they bought, they look like heroes. So I think people are thinking they can do that again. Well, the other thing is though, Kathy, we have so many questions about what life looks like after the virus. As you said, you don't anticipate all that demand, all this pent up demand coming back and some of it cannot come back. We just talked about the sports world at the top of the show. And I mean, don't, you know, if you think you're going to go back to big sporting events in stadiums and you know, stay, you know, it's just not going to happen, and so that kind of economic momentum, economic momentum, excuse me, is not going to be there. And the same thing with restaurants, right? You know, we talked with a doctor who said, "Yeah, you might be eating outside, but you're not going to necessarily be in the restaurant. It's just not going to happen. So the economic momentum we get on the other side of this is not going to be great. No, and just think about it, the plan to perhaps
6: close some streets and let restaurants go al fresco so they can at least make up, right, which then means think about that the next step. So all the delivery drivers can't get down during those hours. All the Uber cars can't go, taxis. So the economic fall through the domino really carries quite far. And if you look at hospitality, 7.8 million people in that 20 million were related to that industry. The, The payroll roles that have gone up over the last few years, were largely hospitality and retail. Neiman Marcus filing, J. Crew filing, rumors that Macy's might be next. Malls opened up, and they were ghost towns. Um, so I really think that we're looking at a continued fallout. I hate uncertainty. I'm a planaholic, and we run our own events. So normally I'd be having an event next week with 150 people, yeah. and we don't even know if we can do our July event with 50. Right. I can't do it for 50. It just doesn't work. So yeah. I face the same issues that a lot of other people do in terms of catering, event planning, et cetera.
1: Well, I think it's a really good point. And, you know, these bigger mass gatherings. And if a mass gathering is you know defined as something more than ten or twenty or even fifty, it's a it's a whole different ballgame in many ways. All right, good reality check. I feel like our theme is continuing. Carol Masser, Kathy yeah. Boyle, we love catching up with her president and founder of Chapin Hill Advisors, joining us on the phone from lovely Pound Ridge. New York.
0: Interesting to hear one of her, you know, folks that she works with and saying, you know, who normally says, let's go to cash. Yeah. But I'm not that scared. And you're right. She's right that year after year after year after the financial crisis, it made sense to just plow more money into the market for the most part.
1: Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.